BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Now that spring is here, it's time to focus on self-care and revitalize your personal care routine. Now through March 26, head in store, shop for all your favorite personal care essentials and earn four times rewards points. Shop for items like Crest Toothpaste, Secret Deodorant, Old Spice Deodorant, or Gillette Razors. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You're listening to Fox Sports Radio. Welcome in, wins and losses. I'm your host, Clay Travis. We are joined now by Miranda Devine of the New York Post. You may have heard her interviewed on Clay and Buck some over the past few years. You certainly have probably seen her on Fox News. I believe they should rescind all of the Russia collusion Pulitzer Prizes and give them to her. Um, And during the course of this conversation, I bet you're going to end up agreeing with me. So thank you to Miranda for joining us. And Miranda, before we dive into your book, Laptop from Hell, the whole New York Post story, all of that, what's your background? How did you come to be writing for the New York Post? Uh, Where did you grow up? What is your journalism background? Kind of let people know more about you honestly i would like to know too i'm not that expert on uh, on your past <laughs> history here well clay thanks for having me and um i suppose uh it will be confusing to tell you that i was born in jamaica queens um even though the accent is obviously not from there and uh I, um my parents were journalists here and uh then uh, we moved to Tokyo, where I spent six years at an American school and had a very strong American accent. And then we moved to Australia, which is my parents' or my mother's um, homeland. And uh, I, I um, got an Australian accent overnight, pretty much. And um, then I uh, did a maths degree as a, as a detour and always wanted to be a journalist. And my parents had said, no, no, don't do it. But uh, I ended up, um, they were back in, in America. My father was um, working for the Reader's Digest. He was an editor there. And um, I ended up coming back here to go to Northwestern University. I did a journalism degree or master's. 
um, for one year. And then I bounced around a bit and ended up at the Boston Herald, and where I spent a very pleasant couple of years, three years. And um, then I went back to Australia, got married, um, spent 20 years there pretty much, raised our sons. Um, and then my editor uh, at the time at the newspaper I was at in Sydney um, was transferred to New York to become editor of the New York Post, Cole Allen. And he was a legendary editor um, in Australia and then here. Um, and he, uh, at the end of his tenure, he said to me, why don't you come over and uh, just come over for, you know, 18 months, cover the election. And that was the 2020 election. Uh, so I came here in 2019 and uh, basically the post asked me to stay. So we've been here ever since. Okay, so first of all, Australia, and this is a stupid American question. Um, we're going to be married, and unless my wife leaves me in the next year, uh, which is always possible, um, we're going to hit 20 years. Uh, we've got three boys, everything else. Before we even dive into the New York Post story, if I were going to Australia for two weeks and I was taking my family, 14, 12, 8, three boys, where would you say you should fly into? Where would you say you absolutely have to see? Like if I had two weeks to go to Australia, because I'm thinking about taking my wife uh, on our 20th wedding anniversary, and I've always wanted to go. I've never been. What would you say as an Australian to me, an American who's never been before, you absolutely have to see this? Well, I'm biased because um, the city that I've spent the most time in is Sydney and it's uh, absolutely beautiful. Um, but with your kids, I would definitely take them up to Queensland, to the Gold Coast. There are a lot of, you know, sort of Disney World style places, absolutely stunning beaches. Um, and then you can go further north and into some pretty wild sort of crocodile country and um, meet some Aboriginals and um and, you know, go, go into sort of outback Australia, which is um, pretty cool. I mean, if you could get onto a, um, a station, an outback station, um, you know, a huge, like a huge cattle ranch sort of thing, but with probably sheep, um, that would be an amazing experience. But I would also say, if you've got two weeks, you should um, explore the region. So go to New Zealand, go to a place called Queenstown, which is just absolutely spectacularly beautiful um so yeah that's, that's my advice all right that's on my that's on my list i literally jotted all of that down as you were talking i bet there's a lot of other americans who similarly would love to take a trip to australia and also maybe new zealand although it's been so crazy during covid in both places that kind of turned me off a little bit um but i i want to now dive into so you come to the united states in 2019 uh to work at the new york post we know, and this is kind of putting the time frame out there, and, and certainly jump in and correct me if at any point I'm wrong. In December of 2019, the Joe Biden uh, son, Hunter Biden's laptop is turned over to the FBI, right? The uh, John Paul, the uh, laptop repairman, says that Hunter Biden, he thinks, he's not doesn't have great vision, shows up with this laptop, turns it into him to get repaired, uh, and while it is there, it is uh, he comes becomes aware of what's on this laptop, contacts the FBI after Hunter Biden doesn't show up, doesn't pay for it, doesn't come back to reclaim it, and shares it with the FBI in December of 2019. You become aware that this laptop exists, allegedly exists, let's say at the time, 
when? When do you first become aware, hey, this thing is out there? Not until the beginning of October 2020 when I got uh, a series of text messages from Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, uh, Bob Costello. And uh, Rudy Giuliani had been um, sent the the sort of hard drive, the copy of the laptop um, in August of 2020. So um, this, this is now... You know, nine months after John Paul MacIsaac has handed over the device, the laptop to the FBI, but very cleverly kept a copy of it. Um, and, and he only contacted the FBI eight months after uh, Hunter Biden abandoned the laptop at his store and it became his um, his legal property. And so I get this text message late at night. I'd been talking to Rudy as soon as I came to New York I cultivated Rudy uh, Giuliani uh, because, well, because I knew of his proximity to Donald Trump and that he knows everybody in New York. Um, but also, I had lived here back in the, the you know, the, the bad old uh, 80s with my parents when um, New York was just a hellhole. And so I had a huge amount of respect for what he'd done to clean up the city. So to me, he was an icon of New York and I was going to work for the New York Post uh, I wanted to become his friend. So I was sort of um, doing that, and he now was trusting me and, uh, you know, giving me interviews and, and so on. And so um, I think I was top of mind when um, they'd had some difficulty. Um, it's a long story, but, you know, they they had contacted a friend of mine at the New York Post earlier, and she'd, um, she didn't have a copy of the hard drive, but she'd been working on it, but the whole project to hit a sort of legal stumbling point. And so uh, I think Rudy Giuliani and Bob Costello wanted it to go to the post, but um, they were just, they'd they'd come to the end of their tether because it was now so close, you know, to the election. It was a month before the 2020 election. So uh, they were going to hand it over to the Daily Mail or some other uh, organisation. And at the last minute, Rudy Giuliani said to Bob, uh, just try Miranda. So he tried me late one night, and I loved it. And um, and you know, spent some time the next day talking to both of them about it, and um, resolved that this was kind of above my pay grade. So I uh, sent some of the information and talked to my editor in chief, Cole Allen, the Australian uh, editor that I had that I had this very good, long-standing relationship with. So it was a mutual trust situation and he immediately saw what a you know what a what potential there was in this story so he just put his you know all the best journalists in the newsroom onto um, tracking it down we sent someone down to Delaware to interview John Paul Mac Isaac and it was all systems go and within five or six days um, we had the first story up and running okay so you have been doing journalism for a while Every journalist has to have, in some way, a bullshit detector, right? For lack of a better way of describing it. Because you've probably, over the years, been pitched all sorts of fantastical, this is the once-in-a-lifetime story, this is incredibly compelling, and probably over time you do some research and you're like, okay, this isn't as it was initially conveyed to me. When did you start to look at the documents yourself and say, holy crap, this is a monster story. The data 
is just voluminous of Hunter Biden, this being officially his laptop, uh, the videos, the pictures, everything else. Because in the back of your mind, you had to know that the Biden team was never going to be like, yeah, you know what? You caught us red-handed. Kind of take me through that process in your mind of, hey, this thing exists, but could it really be real and working your way towards your own determination of the documents? Yeah, well, I, you're absolutely right, Clay, that you know, after three decades or more in journalism, I've wasted so much time when I was younger in um, you know, being a little too or well, not sceptical enough, you know, people come to you with their stories and voluminous documents and I've wasted so much time until I find out at the end that, you know, it's just not worth a story. Um, so I now, you know, at, at the last 10 years or so, I just err on the side of um, just ultra scepticism. I just, anyone comes to me with a story, I just immediately think, oh, yeah, sure, I'm not going to waste my time on this. Uh, I'll have a quick glance at it. Um, so, you know, 90, 90% of the stuff that comes to me, I will just dismiss. This was different because, um, first of all, Rudy Giuliani, in the sort of a year and a half, couple of years, I'd come to know him. He'd never steered me wrong. Bob Costello is an incredibly uh, legitimate person, you know, former um, assistant head of um, criminal investigations at the Southern District of New York, very eminent lawyer, brain like a steel trap. Um, so the two of them were very legitimate. The material they were um, showing me, um, even before I had the laptop, um, just checked out, you know, just quick Google searches of dates and times and photographs and so on, um, just on a very cursory level checked out. Um, and then, you know, John Paul MacIsaac was a legitimate guy. He, he um, you know, and as I've come to know him, I mean, he's a very genuine person, um, a real patriot. He's a Trump supporter, but that doesn't, uh, you know, outlaw someone from having an opinion um, and, and having legitimate material. And he was very concerned. The reason he contacted Rudy Giuliani in the end and, and uh, after originally contacting the FBI was because he saw the um, president, President Trump, who he voted for, getting raked over the coals over the Ukraine impeachment. And he knew that on the laptop there was exculpatory evidence uh, about Ukraine, about Burisma, um, you know, chapter and verse. He, he did a really good forensic deep dive on that. And that was very impressive. I mean, I had his material, his email that he'd sent to Bob Costello initially in August 26, which really, I mean, even today stands the test of time. He pulled out of that laptop three of the most crucial documents um, and narratives uh, to do with Ukraine that are as damning uh, today or even probably more than they were then. So all of this, again, you know, we then, um, uh, uh, you know, other reporters, um, Emma Jo Morris, a terrific journalist friend of mine, um, she did some, some excellent kind of due diligence um, and other journalists that we had did as well. Um, and so we were very confident with those first, um, that first week of stories that the emails um, that we were referring to were legitimate. Um, and then, you know, I get a chance to um, actually do a, a longer, deeper dive in it, and I uh, end up talking to... Oh, sorry, from the very beginning, I also had... Um, I forgot to tell you, I also had um, Tony Bobolinsky's um, material, all his... that he'd handed over to the FBI, 
I came into um, possession of that um, early on. So I was able to cross-match the emails that came from, uh, you know, that, that Rudy, that um, Tony Bobulinski and Hunter Biden had in common. And on top of that, Tony Bobulinski had WhatsApp messages um, and other documents that sort of buttressed and augmented what was on the laptop. Uh, and then, you know, obviously talking to Tony Bobulinski and other uh, people who were recipients of those emails, uh, it just was just incontrovertible. This was a legitimate um, laptop. This was Hunter Biden's laptop. On top of that, you know, the night before we published uh, October 14, 2020, the night before, um, we had contacted uh, that earlier that day um, uh, Hunter Biden by his lawyer, George Mazir. And um, that evening... Um, John Paul MacIsaac gets a phone call from George Mazir. We know it was George Mazir because John Paul MacIsaac in his computer shop uh, had the presence of mind to say, look, I don't know if you are who you say you are. Can you please send me an email in your work email so that I know you're actually Hunter Biden's lawyer uh, to just verify who you are? George Mazir did that. And what George Mazir asked John Paul MacIsaac for uh, was... He said, I understand that you have um, a computer belonging to my client uh, and we'd like to have it back. So, you know, there were just, I, I can't, it wasn't like one bombshell. It was just a thousand points of light with any of these, um, this material when you have vast troves of documents. Um, there's always, you know, countless ways that you verify it. And I'm, I've just told you a few of them. And now, you know, I wrote, I wrote a book on it. And um, I've spent now, you know, over two years um, in depth looking at it. And uh, it, there's not one element of this, this, this laptop that I've published or investigated that has not come out to be um, completely legitimate. And, of course, the fact that Joe Biden and Hunter Biden never, never denied that this was um, Hunter's laptop. And Hunter said, oh, it could be my laptop. You know, I might have lost it. Oh, I might have stolen it. They've never denied it. They've never denied outright any of the information on it. And in fact, Joe Biden, halfway through 2021, um, I had uh, the first story that we wrote from the laptop uh, was on that October 14 story was an email uh, that was Hunter Biden's um, Ukrainian paymaster who was paying him a million dollars a year. Uh, thanked him in this email for introducing him to his father in Washington, D.C. And uh, that was uh, in 2014 when Joe Biden was vice president. And I managed to find that, uh, sorry, 2015. And so I managed to find um, later on, as I went further and further into the laptop, that this wasn't just any old meeting. This was a dinner that Hunter Biden had organised in April of 2015 for his father, then the vice president, to meet his clients' uh, prospective benefactors from the Ukraine, but also from Russia and Kazakhstan. And he organised this dinner at a Georgetown restaurant uh, called Cafe Milano. And, um, you know, so many emails and he says, oh, ostensibly this is, you know, supposed to be about you know, world, the World Food Program that he's involved with, but don't, you know, my dad's coming, don't tell anyone. Um, and, you know, they denied that this meeting ever happened. And then halfway through 21, 
Uh, I published the story about the Cafe Milano, and the Washington Post decides that they're going to fact-check me, Glenn Kessler, and uh, lo and behold, Glenn Kessler finds out that actually the White House admits that Joe did go to the dinner, uh, but that he you know, didn't go for any nefarious purpose and only stayed a short time, which is not true. He stayed for the entire dinner, uh, I'm, I'm told, by people who were there. Stayed for the entire dinner, just didn't drink. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com news and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com news. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Now that spring is here, it's time to focus on self-care and revitalize your personal care routine. Now through March 26, head in store, shop for all your favorite personal care essentials, and earn four times rewards points. Shop for items like Crest toothpaste, Secret deodorant, Old Spice deodorant, or Gillette razors. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details. Okay, I, I, I love all of this. I want to dive into the timeline, if we could. And we're talking to Miranda Devine. I'm Clay Travis. This is Wins and Losses, a deep dive into the New York Post story on Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, and how it came to pass and the reaction to it. And my idea, by the way, for everybody out there listening is so many of these details, you may have come on to this story a year in. You might have come in two years. A lot of people out there are still trying to catch up. And I told you before we started recording, Miranda, it's like a, 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 a television series that you might suddenly have watched an episode of in year three. And you're like, oh, this is interesting but you don't really know the background upon which it's based. So my idea is to kind of ground this 
in a reality to get the timeline, everybody understand it. So you published the first story. Is it October 14th of 2020? Yeah. Okay. All hell breaks loose. I want to go into all hell breaking loose as you publish, but I also want to contextualize a couple of things that we now know that are very important. The FBI was at the time uh, surveilling Rudy Giuliani. So not only did the FBI have the Hunter Biden laptop since December of 2019 when it was handed over to them by John Paul MacIsaac, but also they were surveilling Rudy Giuliani. So in theory, they were aware of everyone in the media that he was talking to. And as point of fact, and I'm sure you've seen this as the Twitter documents have come out, the FBI actually conducted a briefing, basically, the night before this story was coming out while saying there may be some Russian disinformation coming out to seed in the Twitter, in the Facebook sphere. We've seen Mark Zuckerberg come out and talk about these briefings. We've seen the actual documents from inside Twitter. Did you have any clue that the FBI had at the time Rudy Giuliani under surveillance and was in theory aware of the communication that you were engaging uh, with Rudy Giuliani. Presumably, they would have heard you and or seen your interaction with him in some way with him under surveillance. Did you know about any of that at the time? Had no idea, and neither did Rudy Giuliani. This was a covert surveillance warrant, um, and the FBI was basically spying on his cloud. So they had access to all his emails and messages at that time for about two years. I mean, they started when he became President Trump's um, private uh, lawyer, uh, whether or not they were really using Rudy Giuliani. As now, a, and, and sorry, sorry to cut you off, Miranda. Would they have been phone tapping him as well to hear conversations or to your knowledge was this just like hey they're getting every text message for in theory and email that he would have been sending do you know i believe it was just the cloud um i think it's quite easy for the fbi now to just send um messages to uh you know the the Apple or whoever to get access to people's cloud that, yeah okay that's interesting does that make you feel as a journalist, as someone who was reporting on a presidential election, I, I just want to focus on that for a moment. Like, that feels insanely dirty to me because they have since, we should mention this too, found out that Rudy Giuliani violated no law and they have said, hey, we're not bringing any charges. So they got a wiretap, potentially, I think it's fair to say, under unsavory uh, conditions, investigated him determined that he was doing nothing wrong. And in theory, I'm, I'm presuming you would have been texting with Rudy Giuliani and emailing, right? So they were able to then keep trap tabs on you and any other journalist that he was talking to. Does that make you feel dirty that the United States government was able to be basically snooping into all of your communications, especially when you're a journalist trying to get a truthful story out? Oh, for sure. But I, I mean, I guess, you know, most of the, the sources that I speak to, um, you know, for a long time now, we just assume that someone's listening in. It might sound paranoid, but we use encrypted apps um, and we're talking person. So, um, you know, I think Rudy Giuliani was always very careful about what he um, said. Uh, he's just not someone who really 
um, writes a lot on text, and neither was. I guess it up. makes you want to just meet face to face, almost, right? So that in theory yeah. you can you can talk openly. I mean, how crazy is that? Do you have to be concerned about the FBI as a journalist that you have to be concerned about the FBI snooping on you, such that you want to meet in person as opposed to uh, even engaging in a phone conversation? Well, it's crazy, but we've seen that the FBI yeah. has been raiding journalists, raiding lawyers. Um, they, you know, attorney-client privilege means nothing. Um, journalistic sources mean nothing. They raided Project Veritas and took all their yep. their um, phones with all their you know confidential sources. Uh, there's just doesn't seem to be any restrictions. There are there are no taboos anymore. Um, so I, I, look. What we know is that Rudy Giuliani was under, I call it false pretenses, he was yep. under surveillance. He, his house was raided, his home and his office were raided, I think it was 2021. Uh, all his devices were um, seized. And uh, then quietly, two years later, more than two years later, two and a half years later, they returned all his devices. And they just, um, you know, said that there were no no charges. This, he was being looked at by the FBI over foreign agent registration um, act violations, or you know, alleged violations, which they found there weren't any violations. But ironically, that's the exact same uh, violations that Hunter Biden is being looked at um, by the Delaware attorney, uh, U.S. attorney. But anyway, so Rudy Giuliani, we know he's under surveillance. During the time that I was speaking to him, but more importantly, in August of 2020, he was under surveillance by the FBI when John Paul MacIsaac sent that initial very voluminous and detailed um, email to him with screenshots from the laptop talking about Ukraine and his concerns about national security. So the FBI had that. They also... well. I don't know if they had it. I mean, maybe they're lazy and they had the surveillance warrant and didn't see it. So I can't, I can't definitively say that the FBI saw that email, but they certainly had access to it because they were spying on Rudy. They would have also had access to my messages with Rudy. One in particular, most of them were pretty anodyne, but one of them in particular would have tipped them off that the New York Post was going to publish. So, um, and, and, you know, the, the FBI had had the laptop since December 2019. They had interviewed John Paul MacIsaac twice. They knew he was a legitimate guy. Um, they'd, uh, they presumably had done some research on him. They knew that the, what was on the laptop was genuine, and they'd buried it. We now know from FBI whistleblowers who came forward to um, Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson that uh, they that there were... There were People within the FBI, within the Washington field office, who um, buried uh, anything to do with the Hunter Biden laptop or anything to do, any, any information that was derogatory about Joe Biden, for instance, including Hunter Biden's former business partner, Tony Bobolinsky, who I mentioned before, who'd, uh, who I, I had all his material. He'd come forward to the FBI um, a week or so before the 2020 election uh, voluntarily uh, handed over the contents of his phone, which I had, and also um, he had a five-and-a-half-hour interview with them and told them about his concerns um, about the influence-peddling um, operation that Joe Biden 
and his son and his brother, Jim Biden, had been carrying on to do with China because Tony Bobulinski was involved in the China deals. And uh, so the FBI also, we know from whistleblowers, buried that. Okay. They, um, and sorry to cut you off. I'm going to get into that in a sec. But just to yeah. me, the essence of the question here, Miranda, and you've laid it out, but I just kind of want to sum it up is the FBI had had this laptop since December of 2019. They knew that it was real based on talking to John Paul MacIsaac, just based on the voluminous degree of incriminating behavior and just also specific behavior. This couldn't have been the pictures, the video, like it couldn't have been made up. All right. I mean, and and again, uh, they, they knew that it was real from December of 2019. They are they then have trumped up charges, basically, uh, to be able to surveil Rudy Giuliani. As a result, they know that your New York Post story is coming out. They are yeah. telling all of the big tech companies, hey, Russian disinformation is coming out. So I, I, I'm curious how you would analyze this. Someone at the FBI, it's possible, right, that these lower level FBI people who are giving these uh, uh, sermons to the big tech companies about Russian disinformation they may not have known. There, there, there's a possibility there's different investigations going on, and they didn't know about the laptop or the specifics of it. Let's give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt here. But someone at the FBI, maybe it's Christopher Ray, someone certainly at the very apex of the FBI, knew this laptop was real and allowed a false information campaign to be waged against your New York Post story. To me, that's the essence of this question. Who ordered that code red? Who knew the laptop was real and then used every asset they could, including the FBI itself, to protect Joe Biden, Hunter Biden from this truth coming out? Is that kind of, to me, that's the essence of this story right now as all of this information has come out. Somebody at the FBI knew this was real and prevented the truth from coming out. Who was that? That's the crux of this story to me. That's the $64,000 question. And like Watergate, the cover-up by the FBI in collusion with the social media companies and probably the CIA or former CIA operatives, uh, they, they were involved in burying this story. The cover-up is worse than even the, the corruption that we've uncovered from the Biden family. And the FBI... Um, basically had warned Twitter and Facebook during yes. weekly meetings before the 2020 election to expect hack and leak operations by Russia. And Twitter was warned that they would probably involve Hunter Biden and probably happen or likely happen in October. Uh, Facebook was told, um, warned, we know from Mark Zuckerberg talking to Joe Rogan, um, was warned also to be on high alert for a dump of Russian propaganda in October before the 2020 so, election. So, and that's why I think this is so important, Miranda, because I understand why people are angry at Twitter and Facebook. But if you were a mid-level employee at Twitter and Facebook and your FBI came to you and said, hey, we know based on our investigation that Russian disinfo is coming based on allegations surrounding Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and their relationship, there's going to be doctored documents and everything else. When your story dropped, they would have seen this and said, oh my goodness, this is exactly what we've been warned about, which is why the nefarious actions of the FBI 
are so galling because they took advantage of, I really think they played Facebook and Twitter for fools. But also, if I'm putting myself in this position, Miranda, if I had been 28 or 32 and I'm a mid-level employee at Twitter and the FBI is sharing this information with me and they've already seeded this idea of your democracy's in peril because of Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani and everybody else, like you can see why they reacted the way that they did right now. I mean, it's easy to make them villains, but I think the FBI is the supreme arch villain here and really... Twitter and Facebook were just stooges getting played. Yeah, I, I think you can say that, particularly when Twitter had as its uh, deputy general counsel a guy called James Baker, who had been the general counsel, which is top lawyer at the FBI, during all the Russia collusion uh, hoax stuff. You know, he was front and centre. He he was the guy who drafted the memo for James Comey about um, Hillary Clinton. He was the one who brought in the Alpha Bank nonsense and all, all the other sort of nonsense stuff that turned out to be false, uh, the steel dossier and so on about about Donald Trump being a Russian asset. Um, that was James Baker. He's a, you know, a, a dirty player. And he somehow, he gets, basically has to resign from the FBI. And lo and behold, uh, about a year before the election or less, he shows up at Twitter as their number two lawyer. And he was, we know now from the Twitter files, instrumental in getting Twitter to um, censor the New York Post after we published our first story on the Hunter Biden laptop and lock the New York Post account. Yeah, that's where I want to go to next. So October 14th, 2020, this story breaks. I'm sure you were expecting it to be a bombshell but all hell broke loose, even in a way that I don't think you would have anticipated. What was that experience like to have that story happen and then the results? And maybe tell people who weren't necessarily following this minute by minute, what happened to the New York Post when this story comes out to you, to everyone involved in this story? Well, we knew it was a huge story. We knew that it was incredibly damaging to one of the two candidates for president. Uh, it was three weeks before the election. Um, and so, it, you know, it took a lot of guts for, I have to say, my top editor to um, decide to go with it. And so we were bracing. We had decided rather than, or the editors had decided, rather than publishing the night before, as we normally do, like 10 o'clock at night, we would hold back and publish um, in the paper, but online only at five o'clock in the morning. And immediately, journalists on on Twitter, um, you know, people like Maggie Haberman from the New York Times and people from NBC and so on, started talking about it and, and sharing the story because it was huge. On on anyone's standards, this journalistically, this was a massive scoop. Suddenly, you had um, uh, the a, Actually, a guy from Facebook, um, who was a former Democratic operative, he uh, pops up and he says uh, on Twitter, and he says, we are, um, I can't remember his exact words, but throttling or anyway, stopping the spread of this story pending fact checks. I'm not going to make any comment. I'm not going to link on uh, this story. And then shortly after that, Twitter did the same thing. And effectively, I mean, they've got all sorts of words they use, like producing the the, the spread or something. I don't know what their jargon is, but effectively they just censored. They just killed the story um, there and then. And, you know, 
I don't know if people understand, but with newspapers now, so much of um, what, what we do is online and uh, it, it costs us a lot of money, the fact that uh, our, our, um, you know, our story was locked down, our um, account was locked for over two weeks until a couple of days before the election. Um, it really, for, for the New York Post, which is the country's oldest newspaper, the third largest by circulation, it was just an incredible audacity by these social media giants to do this. And we now see from the Twitter files, the internal communications inside Twitter uh, and some of what Mark Zuckerberg told us went on in Facebook. They didn't take this lightly. They knew that this was huge, but they were massaged into it. The story had already been pre-bunked by the FBI. If that grooming of Twitter and Facebook hadn't been happening in the weeks before our story was published, they probably wouldn't have been bold enough to censor the New York Post. But because they felt that they were uh, operating on FBI instructions, basically, uh, to save national security against Russian interference with the, the election, um, they were uh, willing servants of the intelligence community. And there is something really dirty about the fact that here was the FBI intervening for the second election in a row uh, and and with a dis- just completely dishonestly, they knew that our story was real. Um, you can't tell me that the people who ordered the censorship of the New York Post from the FBI did not also know that what we were going to write was real. No doubt. And I think that's what's so important. A lot of people focus on Twitter and Facebook. Someone at the FBI, maybe a group of people at the FBI, at the top, again, just to reiterate, they knew that your story was coming. They had known that your story was coming for some time because they had Rudy Giuliani under surveillance and they were aware of much of his communications and the fact that he was trying to shop this uh, evidence from the laptop which they had been in possession of, the FBI themselves, since December of 2019. So all Rudy Giuliani was shopping was another version of uh, the information that they already yeah. had, which, by the way, if John Paul Isaac hadn't made a copy of what was on the Hunter Biden laptop, no one would have ever believed him about this, right? No. And the FBI would have probably destroyed the laptop and never admit that there was anything on there that was in any way incriminating, right? So someone ordered a fix in a big way. I think this makes, and I'm curious what you think, Miranda, and obviously you're involved in writing this story and you've done an incredible job, but I've been saying this makes Watergate seem like jaywalking, right? Like when you actually consider the complicity involved from the FBI and where exactly and how many different people were involved in this conspiracy of silence to protect Joe Biden and potentially rig the 2020 election. I mean, it is it is a story the likes of which most of the people listening to us right now have never experienced in our lifetimes. Yes, and it has the added element of the threat to national security that Joe Biden and his family's influence peddling operation had during the, the eight years that he was vice president and his son and brother were running around the world partnering with, uh, you know, Chinese um, Belt and Road Front organizations allied with the Chinese military uh, and military intelligence. Um, and and also, uh, we, we, you know, Hunter was getting paid, as I said, 
for $83,000 a month from this corrupt energy company in Ukraine um, for sitting on their board. And, you know, the only reason that he was getting money from any of these people was it was a bribe paid to the family of the second most powerful man in the world, Joe Biden. And Joe Biden had been appointed by Barack Obama to be his point man in China and his point man in Ukraine. And both of those countries were extremely lucrative to the tune of tens of millions of dollars to his family. And, you know, Joe Biden was involved in that. And that's what the value of the laptop is that it shows you uh, how much Joe Biden was involved. He met with Hunter Biden's overseas business partners. He met them in Beijing. He met them in Washington, D.C. He invited them to his home at the vice presidential residence at the Naval Observatory. Um, he met them at, as I said, Cafe Milano. He met them in his White House office. Um, so he, he was intimately involved. He was described as the big guy in one of their emails who was going to get a, a, a cut, a 10% cut of one of these Chinese deals. Um, Tony Bobolinsky, Hunter Biden's former business partner, swears blind that the big guy is Joe Biden, and that's backed up by other material on the laptop. There's so much uh, you know, invoices and bank statements that show you the money flow, where it's coming from, the meetings, Joe Biden's involvement. Um, and then you have to add to that the uh, Treasury Department documents, these so-called suspicious activity reports that banks are required to file when money that comes uh, through into their bank accounts of American citizens comes from uh, dodgy sources, suspect sources overseas. Um, and there were, you know, dozens of those suspicious activity reports filed about the Bidens. And that was uh, unveiled by Chuck, John, Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson uh, when they did their incredibly good investigation, which came out in September of 2020. Before I even knew about the laptop, I read their report, their first report, and it was chapter and verse. It was like the prelude to the laptop. If you read that, then when you saw the laptop it became clear this was the flesh on the bones that Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson had already put together about the Hunter Biden corruption and um, Ukraine. And um, it, just as a little side note, the FBI also intervened to try and derail and discredit um, that, that Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson's investigation. In fact, when I started writing about it, I was warned off and said, oh, no, that's Russian disinformation. I was like, why? It wasn't. What didn't seem to me to be so. And, um, and what Ron Johnson told me was that he was ambushed by the FBI with a bogus defensive briefing um, in, I think it was August of 2020 or late August, early September 2020, because uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer and Adam Schiff had complained to the FBI that there was some sort of Russian disinformation going on that was going to be derogatory about Joe Biden in the, the Johnson-Grasley investigation. And if you think of the timing, August 26 is when uh, John Paul MacIsaac sent that voluminous email to Rudy Giuliani that could have been, I believe, was intercepted by the FBI. So somehow the Democrats panicked around that time 
And they went to the FBI and they said, we need you to uh, do something about the Johnson-Grasley investigation because it's Russian disinformation. Johnson gets ambushed by, by the FBI walking down the corridor. His staff say, hey, there's a couple of FBI people in your office. He goes back. They start talking to him about his investigation and people involved in it and saying, warning him that Russia's trying to spread disinformation. He smelled a rat immediately. He said, that's not true. And if I see this in the media, I'll know that you are just setting me up. Sure enough, uh, a day or two later, what happens? Story gets leaked to the media that the Johnson-Grasley investigation has been polluted by Russian disinformation. We're talking to Miranda Vine, New York Post. I mean, this to me is just incredibly compelling. And again, I'm just going to keep saying, if they actually gave Pulitzers based on real news, then Miranda and her crew at the New York Post should get all of them that were given out for Russia collusion. They should be rescinded. I want to ask you a couple of questions here. Everything in these details is the exact same, except instead of Hunter Biden, Donald Trump Jr., is the one with the laptop. How does the media cover it if Donald Trump Jr. had been accused on a laptop of everything that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, it's Donald Trump Jr. and Donald Trump, exact same details otherwise, this story is covered how in the United States media? It would have been wall-to-wall, just like uh, the Steele dossier, the Russia collusion, anything um, that was Except it would have been up. true, <laughs> unlike those. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the irony, is that they blew up and won Pulitzer's, the Washington Post and the New York Times, won Pulitzer Prizes for their coverage of the Russia collusion hoax, which was proven after a two-year investigation by Robert Mueller um, to be completely baseless and seeded by Hillary Clinton's campaign um, to start with. So it was a Democrat dirty tricks campaign that was um, aided and abetted by, you know, shadowy forces within the intelligence uh, agencies, probably the same people who covered up uh, our story and covered up the Hunter Biden laptop. Um, And uh, it, it, it would have been everywhere. But what we got instead was the opposite this time. We had um, four days, five days after our first story was published, uh, there was this letter. Uh, open 51 letter intelligence by, officials, right, who say that this is all yeah. Russian disinformation. Yeah, mostly uh, they were former CIA and, of course, led by John Brennan, uh, James Clapper, the usual suspect who perjured themselves in front of Congress. Um, And these people, 51 of them, put the weight of their very high... I mean, I think there were four or five former CIA directors um, or acting CIA directors and and a whole lot of other very high-ranking former um, intelligence officials who should hang their heads in shame for putting their name to... a scurrilous letter that dishonestly said that uh, the story that Hunter Biden's laptop had all the earmarks of a Russian information operation. Uh, In effect, and the way that Politico, which was first leaked that letter, uh, reported it was that this was a Russian disinformation operation. But of course, they use weasel words since pretending that they weren't trying to convey that impression. Of course, they were. And uh, it killed the story stone dead in terms of the rest of the media uh, following it up. It was a very convenient fig leaf for the media to say, oh, no, we're not going to cover this. It's Russian uh, propaganda. 
And uh, and then, of course, a couple of days later, you had Joe Biden had to appear at that last debate against Donald Trump. Bad timing for him because, of course, Donald Trump brought up the, the Hunter Biden laptop store in his meeting with the Ukrainian paymaster. And uh, Joe Biden... Um, just uh, used that letter from the 51 dirty uh, intelligence operatives and said, you know, the intelligence uh, community says that this is just a Russian plant and turned the books back on Donald Trump. And he got away with it. It got him off the hook. He'd gone to ground uh, after our story, refused to answer questions, hid in the basement, um, you know, ran away from any any questions. And uh, after that debate, he really was home free. So Miranda, and by the way, the Russian disinformation lie, I'm sure you've seen some of these reports, and I hope some of the people that are listening to us right now are finally seeing the light of day, but around 50% of people, up to 60%, I think I saw in a recent survey, actually still believe that this hoax, that this was a Russian disinformation hoax and the Hunter Biden laptop is all made up. How frustrating is it to you, not only that that argument was made, but that substantial portions of the American population believe that this is all a farce, that this entire story is not true? Well, I mean, it's incredibly frustrating. I mean, it's very depressing for America that that's happening. Uh, And it's not just on this story. It's on COVID, it's on Ukraine, it's on all sorts of things. And the reason is because they've been propagandized by a completely corrupt um, establishment media. And I count the New York Times and the Washington Post there, but, you know, also ABC, CBS, uh, you know, Viacom, um, CNN, MSNBC, etc. Um, they have a narrative. They have hired as experts, as consultants, um, these, these totally discredited uh, deep state people, whether it be Brennan or Clapper or, um, uh, you know, it, it, Peter Strzok, uh, Lisa Page. Um, these people are treated as heroes on CNN and MSNBC and as experts um, whose, whose word is impeccable. In fact, they lied and, uh, and you know, ran a, a complete propaganda mission. And on top of that, you have social media it has just clamped down on the truth about these stories. So, you know, you, you have uh, at least half the country is ignorant. Um, they only believe, they believe everything that they read in the New York Times or the Washington Post. Um, and it's not just in America. Um, I know, you know, from Australia that the, the leading news organisations in Australia, um, they, they rely on the reporting from the New York Times. They regard that as being gold standard. And so they are completely ignorant about what's been going on uh, in America when it comes to Russia's collusion, Donald Trump, the Hunter Biden laptop, Joe Biden's corruption. Uh, they don't really know any of that. And, it, and it, that's the same across Europe and the rest of the world, I would say, because you're not getting your information um, from social media and you're not getting it from what are regarded internationally as the most credible news sources because the New York Times and so on are resting on the laurels of their former reputations. What, Miranda, when you 
now they're all suddenly coming out, right? CBS, I think, did a story. I'm sure you kind of just arch your eyebrows up, and they're like, oh, we did a research project, and we determined that the Hunter Biden laptop <laughs> is authentic. And then the New York Times, they cover it, and then Washington Post, they all cover it years later. Is that validation for you, or is it more frustration for you when you see these stories being written years after you had shared the truth? Not not really either, um, but, uh, you know, I mean, we know it's true. It doesn't matter whether they say it is or it isn't. Um, I roll my eyes a bit, but uh, I'm glad that they've come on board. But I note always that... Um, they're doing it. It's it's like a limited hangout. Um, they they just put out enough information because they know it's coming out anyway. Uh, they know their readers are starting to ask, why don't we know about this? It's leaking um, across the sort of iron wall that they've built up between themselves and the truth. Um, and they 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 know that. Hunter Biden's been under investigation since 2018 by the U.S. attorney in Delaware. They know the grand jury is, um, you know, has, has interviewed or ha- had testified various uh, important witnesses, former business partners of Hunter Biden and so on. Um, so they know that there's going to be a story and a possible indictment out of that, and they need to get ahead of the story. That's why they've been... Um, you know, saying that certain limited parts of the laptop are authentic, but they always put a boilerplate paragraph uh, down, you know, eight or ten pars, which paragraphs which says, um, you know, there's no evidence that Joe Biden was involved. Well, that's just not true. They now have the laptop. Uh, we've published voluminous information, and it's come from elsewhere of Joe Biden's involvement. Joe Biden. Um, told the American people during the 2020 campaign that he knew nothing about his son Hunter's overseas business dealings. Um, that's just palpably false. There's evidence that is now on the public record of his meeting uh, with you know, at least a dozen of Hunter Biden's former business partners. There's also some evidence that I've published that um, Joe Biden financially benefited from Hunter Biden, that they were um, you know, shared debit cards, um, mingled finances, um, and that Hunter was paying for some of the bills in Joe's at Joe's mansion. You know the maintenance of it, painting, new shutters, new air conditioning, and so on, because it's a very expensive um, estate to maintain. Um, and he was also paying for a, uh, a cell phone for Joe Biden. I only have the tip of the iceberg. There's just a little bit of information of that um, in the laptop, but um, I'm sure that the Republican investigators will have access to bank accounts and so on. And and that's important, all that you're sharing there, because you actually and the New York Post did not cover as much of the sensational uh, and ridiculous private life of Hunter Biden, right? I mean, there's scads of information on that laptop, nude videos, prostitution, uh, the, the drug use. I mean, all of that is very salacious, but you guys by your nature, said, okay, he's not the candidate who's running. What we're really focusing on is Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's improper involvement in larger international affairs, not on the personal peccadilloes of a drug addict son. And I think that's important because there is an attack sometimes where they say, well, Hunter Biden doesn't have an elected office. Why should we care about anything with him? 
uh, and they try to focus on the uh, the personal failings. You guys specifically avoided trying to sensationalize those. Yeah, we did, and uh, deliberately so because, well, I mean, A, because the evidence that Joe Biden uh, was compromised by China, Russia, you know, Ukraine, these other countries was was so bombshell that yep. the the fact that his son was a crack addict and you know spent millions of dollars on hookers and uh, and drugs um, was kind of irrelevant. I mean, that's a you know that's a salacious story, um, and ordinarily you'd run it, but because the corruption angle and the national security angle just vastly overwhelmed that, we didn't want to have the two stories mixed up. We didn't want people to get distracted by the porn and the hookers and the crack um, and not see the the real story. We ran um, some pictures. We ran, you know, obviously a photo of Hunter um, with the crack pipe in his mouth asleep uh, and a couple of other things like that because um, that was just showing uh, visually, what we had that we had that this was real. It's significant and, in the evidence to your point, yes, that it is real, right? That these are Hunter Biden videos, and that it would be hard to fake, and that's why that's important. But your reporting is on the significant nature of Joe Biden's involvement, and I think that's so important because you'll get attacked now as there is an acknowledgement that the laptop is real. Some people will come out and say, "Well, why should we care about dr- Hunter Biden? He's admitted he was a drug addict." <laughs> Because of his relationships with foreign countries and the way that that has implicated his father, the President of the United States. Yes, and also the fact that he was a crack addict uh, made it even more implausible that um, these foreign countries and these oligarchs would give him tens of millions of dollars. Um, right. He was his life was a complete mess during this period. He was incapable of even, you know, answering emails for a lot of this. He'd go off on benders, he'd be in rehab, he'd come back and be compassed for a little while and then he'd fall off the wagon again. So, um, you know, he, he, his, his personal life, you know, his divorce, his affairs, his, um, his, his problems were immense. And so there was no way that he was a, a proper businessman. And, uh, you know, that was important to, to make the point as well. Um, but again, this is not a story. We never made it a story about Hunter Biden. It was always a story about Joe Biden. And that's something that James Comer, who's the chairman of the Oversight Committee now, uh, Republican, is always making that point that this is about Joe Biden. But it is a, a quite a, um, a successful tactic uh, by, I guess, the Biden apologists to continually push that point that, you know, Hunter Biden isn't running for office. Hunter Biden isn't the president. You know, why don't you leave him alone? You know, he's had a terrible problem with addiction and he's recovered and you're just tormenting him and he's a human being and so on. No, I mean, I feel sorry for Hunter Biden. But the fact is, um, his laptop is a peephole into a long-standing corruption problem that the man who is now the president has had for over four decades as a very influential senator from Delaware, uh, head of the Foreign Relations Committee, duchessed by China in his very earliest days back in the 70s. He was, um, you know, pinpointed by the Chinese Communist Party as a as a, a likely ally. They invited him to China. He was one of the first delegations to go over there. He went to the equivalent of Martha's Vineyard. Uh, he came back. He was so embarrassing in his effusive praise of China 
that um, the Weekly Standard at the time just made a mockery of him. Uh, and, and as a senator, um, he was instrumental uh, during the Clinton years in getting his reluctant Democrat colleagues to um, agree to China joining the World Trade Organization. I think it was in the year 2000 or 2001. And that had a, a really terrible effect on the American um, working class and American manufacturing on, on the American center, uh, which it lasts, obviously, to this day. So that was Joe Biden, and he's always carried water for China, boasted always about his hours of face-to-face time with President Xi Jinping. Um, and so uh, I, I, just, I just think that that story is terrifying for America. And we know now, right to this present day, the classified document scandal uh, revolving around Joe Biden now links, uh, and I think this is why he's been so panicky, uh, it links him to the Hunter Biden investigation that's been going on in Delaware because um, there, there, are, there are items in that laptop that could, well, appear to be only could have come from uh, classified information. And I'm not going to go too far with that because I don't know for sure, but I, I published um, this week an email from the laptop that Hunter Biden had written to his business partner, Devin Archer. Um, and it was an uncharacteristic email. It was very long. It was very detailed, very informed. Um, it listed 22 points about Ukraine's political situation and had, you know, detailed information, geopolitical, strategic information, uh, predicting an escalation of Russia's destabilization, destabilization campaign, talking about, uh, you know, natural gas, what will happen with energy prices in the UK, etc. And that all uh, comes to the fore when you know um, that in that first tranche of classified documents discovered at the University of Pennsylvania in Joe Biden's office, um, we're, we're told by sources who told CNN um, that those related to Ukraine, to the United Kingdom and to Iran. And so two of those countries are mentioned in this, uh, you know, this, this email that stands out because it's unlike anything that Hunter Biden has written in the nine years of this um, this laptop. It coincides with he's just about to join the Burisma board, as Devin Archer is, and his father is just about days away from going on his first trip to, or, or, or an early trip to the Ukraine. And um, presumably, Joe Biden got a classified briefing on the situation in Ukraine before he went. And Hunter's email to Devin Archer uh, has a distinct flavor of an official briefing and maybe even a classified briefing. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide 
at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Head in store and shop for all your favorite personal care essentials to earn four times rewards points. Shop for products from Olay, Always, Gillette, Vicks, and Crest. Plus, check out new items like Mr. Clean Magic Eraser Ultra Thick Multi-Surface Cleaner. No more sponges or other cleaning products needed. And Head & Shoulders Bare Soothing Hydration Shampoo, a new kind of anti-dandruff shampoo with only nine ingredients. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details hey everyone it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake-up call if you're paying too much for wireless service you don't have to keep having that nightmare consumer cellular has the same fast reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost so why keep spending more than you have to seriously wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Miranda Devine is with us. I'm Clay Travis. This is Wins and Losses. You have a master of journalism. You've been in journalism for decades. What does it say about the state of United States journalism that the New York Times and the Washington Post, let's use those two for example, because they consider themselves to be the paragon of the journalistic establishment. You've referred to both here. They put democracy dies in darkness at the top of the Washington Post, for God's sakes, when Donald Trump was elected. The New York Times, all the news that's fit to print. What does it say about those two lions of the liberal establishment that they wouldn't cover this story? that they would consider this to be unworthy of contemplation by their audience in the lead-up to a 2020 election? Well, I think it tells you that they have been thoroughly corrupted. Um, And, you know, I mean, people will say, well, of course she's going to say that because they're rivals, but I think any fair assessment of the way that they have handled themselves since, um, at least since Donald Trump came on the scene, um, publishing false stories, publishing anonymous, you know, anonymously sourced from uh, obviously intelligence sources that were planting misinformation, disinformation. Um, they have they have swallowed hook, line and sinker the, the whole far left um, cultural uh, ideology. But they've also, um, obviously, there's been a decision made to... Um, to just fall in and lose their scepticism when it comes to any dirt that they were provided when it came to Donald Trump and then become pure as the driven snow and very sceptical when it comes to any information that's derogatory about Joe Biden, even if that information is um, backed up a, a thousand different ways. They have never done a proper investigation of um, the laptop, never. Uh, the Washington Post talks about having authenticated some of it. But even then, the copy of the hard drive that they have came through um, a very suspect avenue. It ca- Not suspect, but 
It came from, it didn't come direct, they didn't get one directly from John Paul MacIsaac. They got a copy of the hard drive that had gone through several hands to do with a guy called Jack Maxey and who, you know, and people who, people who had copied it and, and added things to it and, you know, and that gives the Washington Post um, a sort of get out of jail free card because they can say, well, you know, the chain of custody on this isn't very good because the, the, the hard drive that they've chosen to base their reporting on is not the, the snow white, crystal clear, original hard drive that John Paul MacIsaac gave us. And so it's almost like they're setting themselves up with a sort of a back door um, to, to get away with it. It just seems otherwise it's just incredibly sloppy reporting because John Paul MacIsaac would have given them a copy. Um, and John Paul MacIsaac's now written a book. He's put in there a lot of detail about... Um, you know, his interactions with the FBI, and some of that's quite sinister. Um, now, when he told me about how he felt that the FBI agents who came and took the laptop and a copy of the hard drive um, from him back in December 2019, he felt that they were threatening him or warning him to keep his mouth shut. And I thought, oh, you know, he's he's just a bit paranoid, as a lot of whistleblowers are, because they get scared and they haven't been they haven't dealt with. Uh, law enforcement before and, and they get frightened and um, and they've seen too many movies. So that's what I thought. So I dismissed it. I didn't even write what he said. Um, but with the benefit of hindsight now and now seeing from the whistleblowers, from the Twitter files, um, just how dirty the elements of the FBI were, or certainly the Washington field office, uh, I now um, really believe that he... His, his instincts were right because when those FBI agents were leaving him with the laptop, uh, one of them turned and said to him, in our experience, nothing bad happens to people who don't talk. And he just that just disquieted him. And as he thought about it, he thought, well, that was a warning for me not to talk. And I think they thought that he wouldn't talk. And because they took the laptop, but plus the hard drive that he'd made a copy of, they must have thought that that was it that they had everything. They didn't realize he'd made another copy. Because if he hadn't made made a copy, Miranda, they would have buried this story and claimed that this laptop basically never existed. Exactly. Because that's what they've done. We haven't heard from the the laptop when uh, I think it was Senator Grasley or or another senator asked um, someone at the FBI in a hearing under oath, where is the laptop? They couldn't answer. Um, they, they They have effectively cancelled the laptop. They've cancelled Tony Bobolinsky. Tony Bobolinsky, you would think, would be a prime witness for the grand jury that's going on in Delaware looking at Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings. And um, he knew all about the China, one of these China deals, and that he's never been subpoenaed. He's never been called as a witness. It's crazy. Uh, Miranda, you mentioned John Paul MacIsaac being feared for his safety. Have you feared for your safety at all during the reporting on this laptop? Um, look, it's it's run through my mind, but uh, you know, I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not too worried. No, but who knows? You're not suicidal. You're not contemplating death. By the way, for everybody out there listening right now, correct? No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> You're not planning look, on jumping think- off a bridge. You're not planning on uh, on vanishing. For everybody out there, you're you're of sound mind. 
Exactly. And I think there's so much of the story out now that it's impossible to put the genie back in the bottle. So it wouldn't really serve anyone uh, any any use to, uh, to, to off me. Now, you mentioned Carl Allen, and I just want to circle back around again to what I would consider to be the bravery of the New York Post to cover this. Because I mentioned, yeah. I don't think the Times would write it. I don't think the Post would write it. No. Um, I, I obviously, people could say, oh, well, you would. Look, OutKick sold last year to Fox. I do a lot of Fox News. I'm not a Fox News employee for radio. This is an iHeart production. This is not Fox. But in my experience with Fox, no one, and I've met Rupert and Lachlan and everybody else, no one at Fox has ever told me, hey, don't talk about this. Don't share your opinion on X or Y. That just doesn't happen in my experience. I bet it is similar for you as well. What was it like working for Carl Allen? How important is it? that the New York Post exists because who else is willing to even have the resources and, frankly, the testicular fortitude to actually write a story like this that could create the massive uh, you know, blowback like it did? Yeah, it, you put your finger right on really the most important part of this, which is that you know, as a journalist, it's very easy. You know, you, you're health leather, excited about a story. Uh, you know, you, you think it's real. You, you've done your work on it, but it's going to be a huge bombshell and potentially blow up the election. Uh, and, and, you know, what if it's wrong and it blows up in your face? It have huge ramifications for, for the newspaper and the company. So that decision... Um, to be made by, you know, the top editors, and Cole Allen was at the top um, of the New York Post, was incredibly courageous. And, uh, and but, you know, I've, I've known him and worked for him off and on um, for, gosh, gosh, almost 30 years. I, I had my first child when I was uh, an, 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 a baby editor under him, and um, he's always been like that, balls of steel. Um, he's one of the the real old school newspaper editors uh, and just, you know, has, an, has a nose for a story, is as canny as they come, streetwise, um, can smell bullshit a million yards off. He's incredible and he's the best editor I've ever worked for. And he, um, he just, you know, he just, he's willing, he knows, if it, all he cares about is a story. You know, if a, if a story is a great story, Without fear or favor, it doesn't matter whether it's helpful to to the Republicans or the Democrats. He's just going to go for it. He loves it, and that's what anyone who's a real newspaper person um, that's what that's what they're about. It's not really being a media person; it's being a journalist, particularly old school newspaper reporter. And um, you know, I grew up. My father was one of them. Um, Cole Allen was one of them. I just grew up um, admiring and respecting those old school newspaper men and most of them were men and uh and you know it's a it's a long gone era and i think cole's sort of the last of those um those people because obviously the internet has changed everything but anyway cole's um just amazing and it never would have happened without him and he trusted me and i trusted him and that is because we had many years of working together miranda i come back to this big question why was the FBI so afraid of Donald Trump? Why was the New York Times so afraid of Donald Trump? Why was the Washington Post so afraid of Donald Trump that they were willing to rig elections against him 
in 2020. I'm sure in the back of your mind, you have thought a lot about this too, because ultimately someone at the FBI had to make the choice to engage in this rig job, right? And maybe it's a group of people. What I can never quite put my finger on is what did they find so terrifying about this guy? Well, it was that they, they couldn't control him. Um, if you remember, um, there was a, a Chinese professor after the 2020 election, a video that he'd made leaked out and was soon quickly wiped off YouTube. But he, in that, said he was very close to Xi Jinping in the hierarchy. And in that video, he said, uh, Donald Trump, you know, we've always in China had our friends in Wall Street, but not, but Wall Street could not control Trump. And that's the essence of it. Um, Wall Street, meaning really the establishment politicians, because that's where the money comes from. And um, the, you know, Donald Trump was uh, completely just, he was just America first. He didn't want to go into wars. He wanted to end the war in Afghanistan. Um, he was a threat to the, what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex, um, really an existential threat. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of gravy trains in Washington um, are hitched to, uh, to that wagon, to having endless wars. Uh, and that was one part of it. Also, his um, belligerence towards China, which, you know, a lot of the elites, they make their money from China. And he made it crystal clear that he was going to screw them over or make things fair, screw them over when it came to trade deals. Uh, all of that got derailed with COVID, which came from China. Um, and, and then in their cultural project, you know, the woke ideology, again, um, he, was, he was blowing that up. Uh, and so in every aspect of Washington bureaucracy, the, the administrative state, he was starting to dismantle it. Even, even with the economy, you know, his um, tax cuts and so on, which proved to be successful and fueled the economy um, in the early part of his uh, until COVID. Um, that also was a rebuke to the kind of norms of, uh, you know, economic uh, sort of uh, norms in Washington where um, he, was, he was just challenging all those norms. And he was also an embarrassment to them, I guess, just with his demeanour. Um, but they... they you know, they talked that up. Um, and also, I mean, the fact is, Donald Trump's no saint. He's no angel. He um, he has a sort of shambolic um, appearance. People were embarrassed by him. Um, he was a little bit too Queens for, for the stuck-up people in the State Department and in, in Washington. Um, and so I think in every way he offended their sensibilities. He challenged their um, financial underpinnings. And, and really, their power base. He challenged their power. And so he became an existential threat to the people who really run this country. Um, we're talking to Miranda Devine, and I hope you will share this conversation because I think it's super important, especially if the people you may be friends or family with are in the 50% of the population out there that just doesn't understand the Hunter Biden story, the laptop, and has bought into this Russian disinformation argument put out by so many people in positions of power. Um, 
a lot of people who are listening to us right now are red-pilled, and I think that metaphor works so well because it is true, Miranda, and I'm sure you've experienced this now too, that once you start to pull the thread here, you recognize how deep some of these conspiracies go, and if we're really going to be a functioning democracy, it's not things like January 6th. That's a symptom of the dishonesty that I think many people in this country innately feel from their leadership, right? And and I give you tremendous credit because without worrying about who you were going to antagonize, you simply pursued the truth. And I think you have told the, I think it's a more important story, I really do, than Watergate. And it's symptomatic of where our country has gone that the Washington Post, which published the Pentagon Papers and was willing to pursue Watergate, just pretends that this story basically doesn't exist uh, because it directly attacks their base, which, again, this is a bigger picture story, but I think this has a lot to do with the subscription model and the fact that the New York Times and the Washington Post basically make their money off far left-wing people now, and they can't antagonize that base without threatening to destroy the essence of their business. And even more than that, I think there may be something sinister about the subscription model that they have. Um, you know, you look at, for instance, the uh, New York Times, I think, I can't remember the numbers, I think it's like 9 million subscribers they have. Uh, and, you know, when the internet, internet came uh, into being um, and basically stole the revenue base of um, these incredibly lucrative newspapers, um, they had to find another source of income or collapse. And many newspapers, as you know, across the country collapsed. And so for those papers, subscription models um, became everything for them. And for the New York Times, incredibly successful. And, you know, when you think about it, I I spent a lot of time reading the comments on uh, columns and stories on the Washington Post and the New York Times, and they have a certain sameness to them, which is reminiscent of the sort of bot activity that you get on Twitter. Um, And so I started suspecting that... um, that a lot of these subscriptions, because, you know, you can get a subscription to the New York Times when they do their deals for a dollar for six months. Yep. So it would not cost very much for um, the, the same people who are buying bots on Twitter to buy, you know, thousands of subscriptions and then uh, set their bot people onto to, you know, writing the narrative in the comments. And then when you take that one step further, uh, and we don't know this because the New York Times and Washington Post don't uh, tell us who their subscribers are, but there are bulk subscriptions. And um, some of these bulk subscriptions, there is suggestion, are bought up by China and other of our adversaries overseas. And I believe that the Republicans will be looking into that. Oh, that's fascinating as well. Uh, I when I was practicing attorney, Miranda, and I appreciate all your time. I know how busy you are. Uh, I think this is going to be compelling listening for so many people out there. I used to always end my my depositions um, by saying, what do you wish that I had asked you that I didn't? Is there something else you'd like to say to this audience that I didn't give you the opportunity to close with uh, that you think is important that they might need to know? Not really. You've been incredibly um, uh <laughs> forensic in your questioning. Um, the only thing I guess I'd just um, leave with is that for, for four decades, Joe Biden has sort of traded on this mythology that he's honest Joe, that he's a family man, he's a devout Catholic, um, that, you know, he, his, his entire career was uh, founded on 
um, a terrible tragedy where his wife and his baby daughter were killed in a car accident that injured his two sons, Hunter and Bo Biden. Um, and uh, he used uh, the photograph of himself being sworn in at their hospital bed, these two bandaged, injured boys in the foreground, um, as the basis of his campaigns ever since. And it, it, that elicited a lot of sympathy across the country. But then when I started doing the book, I thought, what kind of a man, you know, why did he have to get sworn in inside the hospital room? Such a great it, question. Even, even at that time of great tragedy and grief, he had his eye on the political payoff. And, and then later on, you know, I'm thinking he knew that his son Hunter had uh, an alcohol and drug abuse problem. Um, I mean, Hunter was arrested when he was 18. He, he was a troubled soul. And, uh, and what kind of a father, knowing his son is a terrible addict, puts him, makes him the bag man and puts him in front of this unaccountable torrent of cash from Burisma as well as everything else. Um, you know, I, I, I just, my entire, I, I, I used to many years ago think I'm Catholic. I, I thought Joe Biden was an Irish Catholic, sort of tribally like my people. Um, but, but over time I've come to see him as a very sinister figure. And I think that his legacy, if, if nothing else comes out of all of this, uh, I think that at least his legacy will be seen honestly and that he will be seen as one of the most malign uh, people to become president. Miranda Devine, you deserve all the Pulitzers. I appreciate all the work that you have done. I appreciate the time today. I would encourage people to go follow you at Miranda Devine. If they want more details, I would tell them to go buy your book, Laptop from Hell. And uh, we appreciate your time. Keep up your good work. And given what the FBI is up to, stay healthy. Yeah, thanks a lot, Clay. Um, I'm Clay Travis. This has been, uh, thank you. I'm Clay Travis. This has been Wins and Losses. She was Miranda Devine. This was a lot of fun. I hope you guys will share and listen to more episodes. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Now that spring is here, it's time to focus on self-care and revitalize your personal care routine. Now through March 26, head in store, shop for all your favorite personal care essentials, and earn four times rewards points. Shop for items like Crest toothpaste, secret deodorant, Old Spice deodorant, or Gillette razors. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. 
Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.